The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for tuning in today to learn more about investing and what to watch in the markets this week. I'm joined by Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Greg Fisher, Founder and Portfolio Manager of Quint Capital. Quint is what you get when you combine quantitative investment analysis with entrepreneurship. That's the E in Quint. And Greg has a lot to tell us about both of those topics today. So welcome, Greg and Ben, and I'm glad to have both of you on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. So let's start with the market, which last I looked was having a pretty dreadful day. Stocks were down across the board. And last week's investors, inexplicably to me, celebrated after the latest reading on consumer inflation came in at 6.8%. That was the highest reading since 1982. Yet the market hit new highs. I didn't quite get it. Ben, do you think investors are having second thoughts about that today? And not really. I mean, I I just think that this market is is doing what we've seen a lot recently, um, where, uh, you know, even though there was a new high in the S&P 500, it wasn't the kind of high that you really want to see. It wasn't uh, a big breakout above the previous highs. We've actually touched this area um, a few times already since uh, the beginning of November. Um, and we really haven't been able to break out much to the upside. Um, and, and I think the uh, the other thing that's going on is that if you look beneath the surface, this market doesn't have um, the, the, the breadth is terrible. Um, and so even though the S&P um, hit a new high, if you look beneath the surface, a lot of the individual stocks in the index are not doing well at all. Um, and so I think this is really just uh, kind of these things that are were underneath the surface of the market last week, kind of bubbling up. I mean, because there's, it's. I think it's just really tough to look at a market where you know you're supposed to have this inflation that's uh, coming, um, but the yields keep falling, um, and and that's a puzzle to I think a lot of people when you get this flattening yield curve, uh, even though the economy is supposed to be growing very quickly and inflation's running hot. So it's a lot of mixed messages there. Very much so. Greg, what's your take on things? To what degree do you focus on macroeconomics and things like inflation data, the yield curve, and so forth? I think all these things are super important. Uh, I mean, the inflation data and interest rates, the yield curve, currencies, you know, all kind of related issues. I think they're, they all matter a lot, uh, particularly, you know, some of the kinds of things that I'm investing in or looking carefully at, like small growth companies. Uh, you know, rising interest rates and the fear of inflation. I, I think it's the, the expectation of these things happening more than them actually happening, which becomes critical. Uh, but I think we know from history that in the short term anyway, rising disc- discount rates are like the enemy to financial assets, uh, particularly if you're buying companies that have uncertain cash flows in the future versus more certain cash flow short term. So, you know, growth investors, I think, are uh, really challenged by the moving around of the perception of inflation and interest rates. Um, and hey, you know, like I just went out and bought a piece of pizza yesterday 
And uh, I don't know if anybody's done that recently, but the price was up a lot. I guess, you know, whether it's cheese or dough or labor, whatever it is, it's just a lot more expensive to buy a slice of pizza today than it was a year ago. I think this inflation thing's real, very real. So why would you invest in companies with uncertain cash flows in the future? Well, you know, not to be overly classic on this concept, but I guess we've all learned that over time, risk and return are related. Um, and I wouldn't only invest in those things for an investor. I think investors should diversify across many types of investments. Uh, but to have a portfolio filled with, you know, innovative entrepreneurial type businesses that just aren't able to make money the day they start, um, these things take time. Their business models take time to play out. Um, so when you invest in those companies by design, you're buying things that may or may not work out. And if they do work out, their profits and margins and cash flows are off into the future. I think we in the industry typically call these things long duration equities. It's like buying a long term bond versus a short term bond in a way. So you hope like buying Amazon back 20 years ago. Sure. We'd all, of course, hope to do, be able to do that. But uh, when you invest in, in, in small companies, you, you certainly hope to have at least a couple of those if you're lucky, right? Right. I, I suppose so. But I'm a little concerned about what we've been talking about, the outlook for growth stocks, which have been ruling the market this year, given the inflation news and what might lie ahead. So the Fed is meeting this week. It's their final policymaking session of the year. <coughs> And they'll be releasing a summary of economic projections on Wednesday, along with the famous dot plot of where they see interest rates going. And Fed Chair Jay Powell is going to be holding his press conference after the meeting on Wednesday. He's already talked to Congress about speeding up the tapering of the Fed's asset purchases. So what does all this mean for investors? Ben, do you want to walk us through what to look for on the dot plot and in Powell's comments? Sure. Um, well, I can tell you what uh, the market uh, seems to be expecting. I mean, right now, um, I was reading a note from uh, Bank of America, one of their economists, uh, this morning, and they basically said that uh, um, the taper, uh, the pace of the taper, is probably going to um, double. So it's going to go twice as fast. I think uh, it's going to go from they expect to go from 10 billion a month in treasuries and to uh, 20 billion, um, and the rate of buying back mortgage-backed securities would, uh, or sorry, of reducing their purchases would double as as well. Um, and that could mean an end to um, the taper in the end of the bond buying come uh, come March. Um, and the other thing they expect is. Uh, two, um, uh, the dots to show uh, two expectations for two rate hikes in 2022. Um, remember, this is a huge shift from when there were really any rate hikes expected um, next year. Now it's kind of, uh, I think, become the consensus that, that we'll get uh, get two of them. Um, I think the market, though, uh, some of the, the futures are actually um, pricing in the possibility of uh, even three or, you know, the, the odds are low, but even a, a, a fourth rate hike next year. Um, and so I think that's what people are are going to be paying attention to is what do the dots say? What really are the Fed's expectations for rate hikes next year? Um, and then how does that compare to the, the market expectations? Um, the Fed and Powell really is just going to have to convince people that he's he's watching inflation, he's taking it seriously, but he's not going to move so fast that he's going to crush the economy. And it's a, it's a tough spot for him to be. And I think that's making the markets a little nervous heading into the, into the meeting this week. So for both of you, how do you think the market's going to react if there are two rate hikes or more next year? What do you think, Ben? Uh, well, uh, this is Greg. Uh, you know, I, I 
I don't think the market's going to be surprised if there are two rate hikes next year. Uh, I, I think to some degree, you know, we're all expecting this in some capacity. I, I think the market would be surprised if, or, if there were three, uh, you know, something, you know, something more substantial than that, or, some, or perhaps if there were less than two. You know, but I, I think something along the order of what you're describing, I, I'm not sure the market would be too surprised by it, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and I agree with Greg. Um, you know, this is um, the this isn't like I, I don't think this is like 2013 where you could worry about the the state of the uh, of the economy and um, there wasn't so much inflation. This is a very different economy where having some tightening makes a lot of sense. So it's all in the expectations here. I think very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Seems. I think I was at Keynes way back when who uh, told us all it's not what we all think. It's what I think, you think, he thinks, she thinks that right. matters. Right. And that pretty much sums up market psychology, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah, and it's really everything, the psychology. I want to go back to small caps, though, for a moment, since that's what you're invested in these days. They're really getting clobbered today, and it's been a pretty rocky six months for small caps in general. So why are you focused on small caps, Greg? It seems to be an area that that is not quite ripe for the kind of systematic strategies you developed at Gerstein Fisher, which was your first firm, but I may be wrong about that. So tell me, what's the attraction here and what's the intersection with a more quantitative investing? Sure. Well, there's so much to say about all that. I mean, and the first is just to think, you know, for those listening to this, our, you know, your 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 listeners and investors, the question first is, okay, am I going to own small enterprise businesses in my portfolio, and and to what degree? Now, you could do that through private equity. You could do that through early stage or venture investing. You could buy, you know, some sort of index fund of small companies. There's a lot of ways of owning small businesses. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to own them at all? And I think for most investors, the answer to that should be and has been yes. I mean, even if you just buy the market portfolio, it's something like 11% small cap. And what I've experienced over the last 10 or 15 years particularly is that most investors own small businesses and, and frankly have been loading up largely on private equity versus public equity. And um, you know, remember, if you put the word private in front of equity, it's still equity. Uh, I think a, my, a good friend of mine shared that quote with me once. So, so the question first is, are we going to own small businesses? And then from there, how do we do it? Now, the thing about small companies, um, you know, I, in the early 90s, starting managing assets using quantitative methods. And like many of us, embraced things like factor investing and characteristic investing and, you know, taking things like the price of a stock and throwing it in the numerator and putting in the denominator things like earnings or book value or cash values or whatever, and ultimately comparing stocks to one another. And, and these things tended to be like good predictive signals on future returns of businesses. But when it came to small growth stocks, those things just never really worked. That the traditional financial yardsticks for small growth companies never did a good job predicting their future outcomes. And because of that, I started becoming fascinated with well, what could we do to better understand these small companies? And that's largely the inspiration behind some of the work that I'm doing now. But coming down to the question of just small companies in general, I mean, first, small companies over long periods of time, we've all seen this data, they have earned better returns than large companies over almost over every 10-year rolling period you, we have in the data uh, across many countries. 
It just so happens, though, that in the last 10 or 15 years, that's not been the case. We generally have seen small companies outperform large over the long term by something like 2% a year. But over the last 10 years, the reverse has been true. And whether you think about this statistically or from some other economic framework, I think that in itself is an argument for why the expected return of small companies from here over the next 10 years could be higher. Um, the other thing is, I think about this in a global setting, not just U.S. only, and to just recognize that there are these small, innovative businesses being powered by entrepreneurs all over the world that have an objective of making strong returns for their investors and producing good products. And I believe that the environment globally and sort of the barriers to entry for small businesses are lower than they've ever been. Um, making it easier for small companies to compete over large in almost every industry than we've seen in a long time. The other thing is this public versus private concept, which is there's been just so much cash invested in private equity over the last 10 years and so much more to go. Basically buying these private businesses and small businesses. And I believe that um, similarly sized, similar enterprise value companies in the public markets to some degree have had a better opportunity than private markets because of the lack of interest in these small companies in the public markets, largely caused by the interest in private equity. And then I would also say there's this active versus passive management. And when I started in the business, there were no ETFs, maybe one or two index funds that nobody used. You know, indexing just kind of like wasn't a thing. Now, as we sit here today, depending on who you ask, Maybe there's like 60% of all the assets are currently indexed. It's a big number. We don't know exactly what that number is. And when it comes to small companies, it's always been the case that there are fewer analysts and less money and people and time spending paying attention to these small businesses. But I think that's particularly the case with the popularity of indexing. So when you combine the... Um, ambiguity evaluation of these small growing businesses, the sort of intangible, hard to measure assets of these small businesses, the entrepreneurial revolution that exists and the barriers to entry for entrepreneurial activities, the long-term expectation of small companies earning better returns than large over time, and a variety of other things. These are all the reasons that attracted me to investing in small companies at this moment um, for investors. That's a pretty convincing list, I have to say. So I have a longer list. I gave you the short version. Okay. <laughs> how do you expect, I guess I'll call it a reversion to historical trend, but how do you expect that to come about for small caps after the past 10 or 12 years? Well, look, I, I think that we, we saw it happen to some degree last year, as I think we all know, after 10 years of small companies not performing better than large, last year was the first year in a while where the reverse was true. Um, and to some degree, we see that again this year, although more on the value side of things uh, for small companies. Uh, but I, I believe, you know, when we look back after the financial crisis, to some degree, the banks cut off the small companies from lending and they were kind of starved for capital. And then over a period of 10 years, the you know, amount of cash in private equity and, you know, the, you know maybe the, the trend that we're now seeing with uh, more IPOs than we'd seen in a while. And then, of course, the SPACs, I, I think we see the cost of capital for small companies declining a little bit or their access to capital uh, increasing a little bit. And I think to some degree that helps. But also, again, the environment that we see globally, 
Um, you know, I think about some of the small companies that I've invested in over the last couple of years. Like, you know, one of them that we all know pretty well right now is Fiverr. Uh, Fiverr is this, you know, future of work business out of Israel. You know, you think back, I don't know, is it five or six years ago, the company barely even existed? What's the ticker, couple by people the way, in Israel working. for those listening? What's the uh, I think ticker? it's, F I believe, believe it's F-V-V-E-R. Um, anyway, when you, when, you, when you look at this company as an example, you know, a couple of people working out of a garage, basically, in Israel, um, out of nowhere, creating a company that competes quite well with many large search firms, consulting firms. You know, in the old days, when I, when I started my small business, I remember when we wanted to do some brand strategy work, you know, you go to a company like uh, a McKinsey or, you know, great companies and you, you pay them a bunch of dough to do an analysis of the environment and, you know, help you come up with what your business descriptor is or your, your brand or your logo. And maybe that costs you a million bucks or something like that. Um, then out comes a company like Fiverr where you can go online, type in a little bit about what you're looking for. And then, you know, within a matter of minutes, Thousands of people all over the globe are bidding on your project, including form, former retirees from these big consulting firms that might do the same work for three grand. And um, I remember hearing about this whole future of work thing five or six years ago at a Harvard class that I attended. I'm like, future of work? What the heck is that? No. And then here we are. We're like, we're in the future. We're, we're in we're the future. In so these guys, So like, imagine a company like over, you know, within months being able to compete with these large companies and take away market share with like, you know, a few people in a basement and a couple of computers. Um, and the stories go on and on. I, I, you know, I think of a, another company that became pretty large ring central that I invested in a bunch of years ago. Um, when I started my business, I remember I was very early to having a voice over IP phone system. It was like a big deal when I got it. I remember thinking, wow, I had this whole big closet filled with all this equipment and a couple thousand dollar a month consulting contract to uh, service my phones. And, but it was so cool that I could have a woman working with me who had a family who was able to work from home and answer the phone like she was sitting right next to me. And it was like fascinating. Um, and that thing cost me, I don't know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars in ongoing consulting fees. And it was always needing to be fixed. Now, out comes this company, Ring Central, a few years ago. For 20 bucks a month per user, I have something that is substantially better without any overhead. So I can be in business as a new business and, and have a, a, an incredible phone system for 20 bucks a month. And the stories go on and on. This kind of thing didn't exist a few years ago. Um, so I, I really believe that the environment for these small entrepreneurial businesses, you know, run by type A founders with lots of skin in the game, with incredible teams that are obsessed with customer service, are just in a position to do quite well. We have two questions for you related to this, and then we'll go on to corporate earnings this week with Ben. But the first question is from Farina. What characteristics do you look for in stocks that are up and coming? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that I look at, you know, many things. But one of the things that I often look at is an indication around how these companies think about the entrepreneurial culture within them and the innovative culture within them. Um, because one of the things that small companies can do that large companies have a hard time doing is innovate and take some risk. 
you know, as companies grow larger and larger and there are more and more employees and, you know, more people to answer to and a lot more risk and regulatory issues and all kinds of things, it gets harder to innovate. So I look for the kinds of signs that these companies are really on board with innovation, um, that they've created an environment where innovation is rewarded and celebrated. But, you know, an example of how you might find companies that are doing innovative things, I mean, you might first we can use text analysis or natural language processing with the technology we have today. We can go back and read all the letters and all the transcripts and all the commentary that these companies are putting out. And you might imagine some, doing something as simple as looking for the word innovation. Like, do they talk about it? There's many more things we can do. I mean, another example might be how many H-1B visas does the company have filed? Like, are they hiring people that have, you know, engineering backgrounds that are able to do technology development versus, you know, other classes of people? We could also read social media, LinkedIn, Glassdoor. We can see what are the people that are working there talking about? What are the kinds of jobs they have open? The lists go on and on, but for me, looking for small businesses that have this sort of innovative entrepreneurial culture uh, is, I think, one of many things I look at as an example. Interesting. And then Greg uh, um, Lee asks, Greg, when you do your search for small caps, do you concentrate on any particular sectors? Are most of these companies you choose in the tech sector or are they spread across industries like restaurants, retail, machinery and pharma and so forth? I'm invested in a very diversified way. So almost every sector you mentioned, I have some exposure to globally in many countries. Um, I don't actually, I, I'm sector agnostic, but you know, I was, I, you know, if, if uh, I do a podcast, it's called The Q Factor. And my recent guest and episode was about ag tech, agricultural technology. I mean, you could put anything, the word tech after any industry and there's room for innovation ag tech, fintech, everything tech. So I would just say that, you know, healthcare, you could apply these sort of innovative ideas to any sector. Um, but, you know, when you're, when you're investing in growing, small, fast-moving, innovative businesses these days, it, it does tend to lend itself with a focus on technology in general or media. Uh, certainly healthcare is an important place. Um, you know, I think when you think about artificial intelligence, I often ask researchers and people I'm communicating with, I always ask, you know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, what sector do you think will be the greatest beneficiary of AI, which is like tech in the extreme these days? And almost hands down, everyone says healthcare. So it sort of led me on a mission of thinking about that a lot. So I'm sector neutral, but that would be the way I'd answer that question. Sounds good. Thank you. So I want to turn back to Ben for a moment. We've got a number of big companies reporting earnings this week, and we can start with the housing sector, Ben. That's a sector Barron's has been quite positive about. We're going to hear from Lennar on Wednesday. What's the outlook there? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a quiet week for earnings, except we do have a, a few big companies that are really interesting, including Lennar, as you said. Um, and Lennar, I mean, what's what's interesting there? This company um, has been growing very quickly, so it's expected to report a profit of four sixteen a share, 
and that'd be up from $2.82 a share uh, a year ago. Um, the stock, though, has also been gaining a lot. It's uh, it's up 53% uh, in 2021, 70% in uh, just the last three months. Um, but what makes Lennar interesting, and I think, you know, we have this context of the housing market that Andrew Barry wrote about recently, where, you know, you probably have the, the strongest, uh, one of the strongest housing markets ever, um, because of the pandemic, um, but there are other factors that are that should keep the market strong. Um, but what's interesting is trying to find um, the housing companies. You know, they all trade very similarly, but finding little things that uh, differentiate them. In the case of Lennar, Goldman Sachs was noting that uh, you know they have this spinoff that they plan to do of non-core assets. Um, and so that includes things like land and includes things like multifamily um, buildings it owns and, and, and whatnot. And um, they're very positive on this being able to lift Lennar's uh, return on equity. And so I think more than just the number um, when it reports and whether it beats or misses, I think investors will be listening very closely for how that uh, uh, for any more details about that spinoff, because there hasn't been much talked about there. Um, and we also get some housing data. Um, this week as well. Housing starts are, are, are due. They're supposed to rise a little bit. Building permits as well. They're supposed to tick up a little bit. And so it looks like we're still going to get some, um, you know, enough uh, information out there suggesting the housing market is still strong. And that should be good for the housing stocks in the near term. No end to this, it seems. The housing it really does. Really amazing. So we're also going to hear from FedEx on Thursday. And theoretically, the company should be doing great. It's the holiday season. Everybody's shopping and mailing things. But in reality, costs are a big problem for the company, aren't they? It, they really are. I mean, you you read the reports that are out there on FedEx, and even the bulls are expecting bad news. They're they're expecting a miss on earnings. Um, FedEx is supposed to report a profit of four dollars and twenty nine cents. That would be down from four eighty three one year ago. Some of this is already reflected in the stock, which has dropped four point four percent over the last three months and is down five point one percent this year. But really, what you're you're seeing is that uh, their costs are rising. They're um, you know some of it is just normal seasonal things. They're having to hire extra workers for the holiday season. Those costs go in uh, for the November quarter, um, but the revenue doesn't come in until the following quarter. And so there's there's a bit of a mismatch there. But uh, FedEx is also trying to expand into residential and seven-day delivery and things like that. And that's also adding costs now without the revenue coming in immediately. And so this is just a tough time uh, for FedEx. The, the good news there is that it's underperformed a ton. Um, and so it's possible for people to expect the company to miss and miss by a lot and still be bullish on it. So it, it's quite a surprise, but supply chain issues and so forth are a problem there. Um, tell us about Adobe also reporting. Software stocks have been under a cloud after DocuSign's earnings report about a week or so ago. What's ahead for Adobe? Oh, well, that's right. I mean, DocuSign dropped around 40% after its numbers came out. Uh, it was just incredible. Um, and even Adobe took a pretty big hit uh, in there when that was going on, though it's really stabilized now. It's expected to report a profit of 320 a share. That would be up from 281 a year ago. Um, it's having a decent year. It's up 31%. I'd call that probably better than a decent year. It's a oh, yeah. market. Um, but it's been down 0.7% uh, for the past three months. Um, what's interesting is how it's not just Adobe stock that needs a good print, but it's the software sector. Um, so this is coming from a Mizuho analyst named Jordan Klein, but he says it's critical for software sentiment and direction in the near term following DocuSign um, that Adobe has good numbers. Um, they think it's coming. Um, 
they think that uh, the, the biggest risk right now is that is with the guidance to fiscal 22. Um, there's a new CFO there, and it could be that uh, the CFO wants to be conservative and uh, tamps down the guidance a little bit, uh, particularly on operating margins. Um, and uh, so that's something to pay attention to. But uh, he does think that a good report would be an all clear for the stock, stock and for the software sector generally. And then we can forget about that 40% drop. Uh, well, I think it's it's a little hard to forget that. That was <laughs> kind of, kind of. So we, I don't think we can conclude our earnings discussion without talking about Rivian. They're reporting on Thursday as well. What's yeah. the what's the outlook there? Well, Rivian's great because it's not going to have any earnings whatsoever. Um, you know, it's expecting a loss of six dollars and eighty four cents. It's still really, uh, for the most part, pre revenue, um, and uh, it's. Uh, Speaking of cash flows in the future, as we were earlier, yeah. very <laughs> why is that? Why is that stock up today? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I wish I knew. I mean, what's so fascinating there is that the debates around the stock are have, have nothing to do with uh, profitability anytime soon. Um, but it's just on. You know, it's it's almost like a dream. You know, how, how much can your imagination run away with what this company could be? Um, I think the one thing that does separate the the uh, the bulls from the not so bulls are um, basically how how valuable do you think it is that they have Amazon in their corner? Um, you know, Amazon has invested there. They're planning to buy 100,000 delivery trucks. Um, and that means that there's kind of a, a floor, perhaps, on some of the revenue. And I think that gives people confidence that Rivian is going to have a place at the table um, when, the, when the time comes and, uh, and the EV market starts to mature. But right now, it really is just... Uh, you know, this it's, uh, Al always says, yeah, the earnings don't matter uh, whenever one of these uh, kinds of companies uh, um, uh, report. And he's absolutely right. Well, the earnings matter when interest rates go up. Um, it, it, I think it depends on, on how much they go up. Um, there's, uh, you know, it, it does make their their cost of capital um, more expensive, um, all as being rolling, especially with their profits so far out into the future. Um, so, it, so it could be an issue. Um, yeah, certainly. Greg, do you have any um, favorite small caps in the EV space or in the renewable energy space generally? Uh, I guess I'll say no to that. Um, you know, the, the EV space in general is something I'm a little bit skeptical about in general. Um, I, I've actually, you know, sort of focused a little bit more on, you know, things like lithium miners, um, you know, like the, some of the inputs to the industry, but the, the businesses themselves, I'm, I'm having a hard time with. So I don't really have a favorite there. Um, and uh, that's my comment. We had a question. Do you have any favorites among small cap um, bank stocks? Huh. Well, it's interesting. I, I, had a, uh, I had a friend of mine recently was saying, you know, he's got a business. And, you know, all these online banks that have like, you know, 50 basis points of yield versus zero. Um, but most of them don't allow for business accounts. They're all almost all individual. And there's this company, Live Oak, that actually has something similar, but for businesses, which I thought was a bit of a differentiator. And I think that's an interesting business. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there is some interesting things going on in fintech, the, the technologies that power financial services and banks. Um, as opposed to the banks themselves. Um, and, you know, with all, with all that we're hearing about now with regards to the cost of labor and the great resign and the underemployed and the low quality jobs, 
Um, I think that, you know, the software businesses that serve fintech in my, in serve banks, in my mind are sort of more interesting than the banks themselves, where, you know, that might help them create a little scale in their business models versus having it be all about people that are hard to hire right now and those rising costs. Could you give us an example of one of these service providers to the sector that's interesting? Well, like, you know, I mean, I think across across all of them, there was, you know, Appian for the real estate business. There's um, a couple of companies that are, you know, the payment businesses for the banks. Um, I don't really think I want to mention any one in particular, but there's a there's quite a few of them out there, whether it's serving, you know, the real estate industry or the banking industry or the insurance industry. There, there's quite a few. Um, you know, I, uh, I think, uh, you know, SS&C, for example, as a technology business basically serving you know all sorts of financial service businesses whether it be banks or brokerage firms or fund managers um, th that's one that comes to mind but there are so many so i want to close by asking you you host your own podcast as you mentioned the q factor you talk to a lot of academics who apply uh, data analysis across a lot of different fields who do you think is doing the most interesting work these days and Maybe you could spend a minute and tell us what it involves. Well, I mean, a, a friend of mine who I have complete respect for is, I think, one of the brightest guys in the business. His name is Andrew Ang. And if he's listening, hi, Andrew. Um, he's at BlackRock. And he's doing some incredible work in you know all aspects of quantitative analysis and finance. So he's somebody whose work I really admire and whose judgment I really appreciate. But, but I think more broadly, I would say that um, what I've always done in my career, and I'd recommend others to do the same, is to keep up with this stuff, looking at academic research that comes out in things like Google Scholar or the SSRN network, um, and, and reading that, because I think that you know, the work that comes out of academia and in these research papers is often um, you know, being done for things like tenure or the freedom of the research, as opposed to the incentives of a lot of the work that comes out of traditional financial service businesses. So I would just say like things for investors to do to keep up with this is to keep an eye on the literature and the papers that are coming out of the academic uh, industry in general. Um, but I think that uh, you know Andrew's work is something that I really admire. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the call today. And it's always a pleasure to have Ben on the call. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Wonderful. I want to thank our listeners, too, for tuning in today. Please come back tomorrow. Reshma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's, and David Blanchett, Head of Retirement Research at PGIM DC Solutions, will discuss why the 4% rule may not be a good idea for retirees looking to tap their nest eggs and what may be a better strategy to make the most of their savings. We hope to, see, to hear from you again tomorrow. Thanks for your questions, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.